And welcome to Tuesday's edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live here on Giants.com, the mobile app, as well as most popular podcast platforms. He's Paul DeTino. I'm Lance Meadow. Good to be with you for the next 60 minutes. Hope everybody had an enjoyable and restful Memorial Day weekend. We'll have a lot to tackle over these next 60 minutes as we'll get into some latest news and notes surrounding the NFL, as well as the New York Giants, potential rule changes that are being discussed that will be put up to vote a little bit later on this week with the virtual owners' meetings. Paul, looking forward to the next 60 minutes. How's everything on your end? Should be a lot of fun, Lance. I don't know what happened, but somehow we fast-forwarded into summer. I know the calendar says it's another month away, but, man, it is looking good this week. It is crystal clear, beautiful weather up here in the Northeast region, so hopefully that will continue. I know you'll be very excited to get your power walks in, so you have no complaints from that front. Indeed. We will be fielding your phone calls at 973-667-1960, 973-667-1960. You can also send in your questions or comments to hashtag Giants Chat on Twitter. You can also interact with each of us on Twitter at Lance Meadow, one word, last name, M-E-D-O-W. He is at Giants W-F-A-N. But we're going to start off the program with a special guest. As John Schmelk and Paul Dettino had an opportunity to chat with former Cowboys quarterback, also former Cowboys quarterback coach under Jason Garrett, John Kitna and the conversation started off as John Schmelk asked John Kitna what is the first thing that comes to mind when you hear the name Jason Garrett I get asked often you know who's who's your favorite head coach that you play for and without hesitation I always say Jason Garrett and uh you know I got to see somebody in 2010 that was a coordinator and then had the head coach job thrust upon him because uh, you know, we, we went in a different direction with Wade Phillips as an organization because the players weren't doing what they needed to do. So, you know, a good man had to lose his job in Wade, but uh, Jason Garrett just did not flinch. It was clear that he was prepared for that opportunity and uh, had been prepared, uh, preparing for years. And when he stepped into that role, um, it was just, it was a thing of beauty to watch how he led through that. And, uh, and then what he's done the last 10 years, he's been a great mentor to me um, in terms of coaching and, and uh, somebody that I look up to. And, and then, you know, now being back as a, uh, you know, a play caller, you know, just look at his offenses. When he's the play caller, they're usually a top five offense. Well, John, as a quarterback for Garrett about a decade ago who had a chance to run his offenses, and then last year I know you were the quarterback's coach uh, for Garrett with the Cowboys. Could you give us a a dumbed-down version so that all of our fans can understand it? What are the primary keys, the basic things that Jason Garrett wants to get out of his offense? What can fans expect to see here with the Giants? He wants wants the offense to have an aggressive mindset and – you know, he's going to call the plays aggressively. You know, obviously that's all going to be predicated on, you know, how how well, you know, he gets his quarterback up to speed and all that stuff and dealing with the younger guys. You know, it's different, but, you know, he, he played well last year. And, and so I'm sure he's excited about that, but he's an aggressive play caller. He's going to, he's going to, he's going to call plays that are meant to get the football down the field and trust the quarterback that, you know, if we don't get what we're looking for to, to move on and, and get it to that back coming out of the backfield, and and then we'll call the next play. But that's what he wants to do. He wants he wants to call, you know, call the game aggressively. He wants to, to be on attack mode all the time, and uh, he really tries to instill that in, in his in his offensive you know unit really. 
You know, John, we've talked to a bunch of people that have either covered or played for Jason Garrett and is were around the Cowboys the last decade or so, and they kind of differentiated between the type of offense that they ran with Kellen Moore as the OC and the play caller last year as compared to stuff that Garrett has done in the past. From an insider's view, you obviously were in both systems as a coach and a player. How much different was it, and, and how much of a change was it from what Garrett had done traditionally to what Moore did with Dallas last year? Well, you know, it was a lot of the base of the offense was the same, but, you know, clearly things have changed. I mean, Jason, I, I believe he hasn't called, called plays formally since, you know, 2012 or 13. Yep, that's that's correct. a long time. The league has changed. And, uh, you know, that was same for me coming back into the league last year as a coach. You know, just the league has evolved and changed and there's different. So I don't, it's not like Jason doesn't know about these things. He just hasn't been a play caller in eight years. So. Um, but he was always a part of every offensive staff meeting that we had. He was very collaborative with Kellen. Kellen brought a lot of really cool, new, fresh ideas. That was new and fresh, I guess, to our system, um, you know, and what they have been doing. But uh, you're going to see Jay. Jason's <laughs> one of the smartest people you know. Uh, he, he's, he's, I've never seen anybody outwork the man. He's a great communicator, a great teacher, and uh, he really gets the quarterback to a place where the quarterback just plays free on Sundays. And, and uh, you know, I expect nothing different, you know, going there in New York. And with all the young talent that they have there, it's going to be, it's going to be interesting to watch. Well, let me build on what you just said about having the quarterback play free. Jason obviously was here with the Giants at one point, was a backup quarterback. We know that Daniel Jones is entering his second season and needs to take another step in the maturing process. Could you talk about what it is that Garrett is going to look for in Daniel Jones and what you think he will be the best at developing to bring out of him as he continues to grow as an NFL player? Again, I think it's exactly what I was trying to convey a second ago, which is he's going to call plays. And we're calling this play to throw this route. Okay, when when you get that route, let that thing rip. Get back and let it rip. But if it's not there, move on. Move on. Find the back. Find the tight end. Find the next thing. Don't stand back there waiting for something to come open. And uh, and, and so you're going to find a, a quarterback that, like I said, he's going to play free. And uh, Jason does a great job of not overcomplicating the game. And uh, I think that, you know, guys that have played quarterback in this league are, are great at doing that. Uh, making the game simple for the quarterback so he can get back, get rid of that football. It's, that'll, it'll be a lot more friendly for the offensive line. You get the ball to all your playmakers in space. That ball's going to come out of his fan, hand fast, excuse me, hand fast. But, you know, Daniel was already doing that last year. I watched it a lot. And, uh, you know, but, you know, a lot of the times when you get in trouble or defense confuses you, you know, Jason's just going to keep preaching to him. Just move on, move on, take that back. And move on, get the ball out of your hands. John, when I think of a, a traditional Jason Garrett offense, and I went back, I watched the, you know, 2008, 2009, and as you mentioned, a lot in the NFL has changed since then. But how much of the base of what Garrett wants to do still goes back to kind of that, you know, North Turner, Ernie Zampezi, timing, attack the middle of the field with slants and deep in cuts, and, you know, those sort of traditional things, you know, play action that we've seen from uh, the, the Cowboys offense over the years since he's been there? I mean, I think you say traditional. I think, I think that's the NFL. Honestly, like you know, the NFL typically you've got really good corners that are out there, sure. that uh, that cover people really well on the outside edge of the numbers, and and uh, if you got some dynamic receivers that can that can beat corners like that, awesome. If not, 
you better be able to work the middle of the field. And uh, that's really what the NFL is. It's about how you can create your matchups and, and, uh, and, and get the kind of leverage that you're looking for in the middle of the field. And then, you know, can guys beat guys outside one-on-one? And that, that really is a personnel thing more than a scheme thing out there. And so, yeah, there's, there's some traditional stuff to every offense. Every offense has a base to it. And, uh, and that's what they're going to have. They're going to have a great base to it, but it's going to be, I, I guarantee that offense is going to look different every week. And, uh, but it's going to emphasize that, it's going to emphasize that runner in the backfield. Trust me. At the end of the day, every good offensive coordinator, every good offensive coordinator, Jason, I think is one of the better ones. Is going to emphasize the runner when you have a guy like that. You know, Paul, I, I want to follow up real quick, and then you can hit the Saquon Barkley angle if you want. You mentioned the offense looking different week to week. Joe Judge has really stressed that, how he really wants the game plan per week for his opponent. How much did you see Jason change things week to week based on the opponent and the personnel that they had on the field going against your offense? Yeah, I mean, that's that's just it. Is You know, we were always trying to find different matchups and things that we could exploit but then how we can run the same place, you know, at the end of the day, you want to run the things you're good at, but we just got to, we got to dress it up different. We got to make it look different. We got to, and, and, you know, he's going to do that. I mean, that's all, you know, this, this year with our concepts and, and the, uh, the conversations in our offensive meetings, that's what it all, you know, a lot of times was focused around was, okay, how do we get to that play differently this week? And how can we, how can we dress it up differently? But, um, you know, again, it's going to be this. The day and age that we're in in the NFL is so different than it was 10 years ago because of technology and the advancement of technology and the 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 ability to be able to see what everybody does. You know, at the click of at the click of a mouse, and uh, you know the fact that you're, you're carrying around film with you all the time on your iPad. It just wasn't like that. You used to have to actually sit down to watch film. And, Put a put a VCR you know VCR tape in and you know or a, a CD in and, and and it's not like that anymore. It's, it's at the tip of your fingers all the time. So you have to constantly be changing. That's how the league is set up. John, let me ask you specifically. You mentioned running back just before that last question, and obviously Demarco Murray was a very physical, pounded kind of running back. Ezekiel Elliott, the same kind of guy. Saquon Barkley, to me, seems to be a little bit more of a home run hitter, a little bit more of a long ball, explosive kind of threat. How will Garrett's philosophy about employing a running back fit with Saquon Barkley? What will we expect to see Barkley being asked to do this year? I can tell you this much. I I bet I, I would I would imagine that Jason is probably devising ways to put the football in that guy's hands 25 to 30 times a game, and that's not going to just be handing it off to him. It's going to be all the different ways you can get him the football, get it, get him the ball in space. Because, like you said, he he, uh, he just seems like kind of a home run hitter, a long ball guy. But we don't know, you know, unless you're in those meetings and you're in the scheming and you're in the the game planning and all that stuff. We don't know exactly how they were set up as an offense and, and uh, how, you know, wh- how they were trying to emphasize it. All I know is Jason, his track record is pretty good at getting the, the running back to football, uh, you know, upwards of 20 to 25 times a game so that that, that runner is, is feeling in the flow and comfortable. John, how did Coach Garrett vary the run scheme in terms of using power, gap scheme, outside zone, inside zone? Did he did he really stick with one more than the other? Did he mix it up based on the type of lineman he had on the roster? How did he work yeah, it usually in terms of his run scheme? That's the that's the right way to think about it. It was you know oftentimes dictated at what the linemen do best, 
and uh, what the runner likes best. When you look at DeMarco Murray, I mean, that, that guy was more of a zone running yep. uh, uh, runner, whereas Marion Barber was, you know, let me get the football and get downhill. And so they were completely different. Felix Jones, hey, how can I get the ball to this guy outside the tackles? And then you got ZQL, well, he's a zone runner. That's what they've done. And so uh, it's really a bit about the personnel. And, uh, you know, Jason, he's been around the league forever. Um, I think he was born into the NFL. So <laughs> there's no scheme that he doesn't know. Well, let's go right to that offensive line for a second because, obviously, John, you've also had some time crossing paths with Mark Colombo, who is the Giants' new offensive line coach. The reputation that he has as one of the Parcells kinds of guys is all about detail and fundamentals and technique. From your eyewitness perspective, what is he going to bring to the table to this Giants' offensive line, which obviously is in the middle of trying to improve? Well, again, I'll tell you this about Mark Colombo. Uh, he's a no-excuses kind of guy and, uh, you know, tough-as-nails kind of guy. And so there, there's that offensive line is going to have a great uh, brotherhood and relationship with each other. But, you know, the whole thing about offensive line play, especially when you're coming in, you know, talking about pass protection and stuff like that, that's, that's an all-11 guys deal. That's not a five-guy deal. It's all-11 the quarterback getting the football out of his hands, it's receivers being where they're supposed to be, when they're supposed to be there, and, uh, and it's the runners making sure that they're solid in protection and then getting to their checkdowns. And so, um, you know, I think you're just going to see uh, an offensive line that takes on the personality of, that, uh, of Mark Lumbo, which is tough as nails, do whatever it takes to get it done, focus on the fundamentals, but at the end of the day, your job is to win one-on-one battles, and there's no excuses. And Having you know been on the staff with him last year, exactly how he went about his job day in and day out. He's incredible with the run game and putting things together. And uh, he and Jason work really well together. Can I follow up right there and just ask you about the, the kind of relationship that Mark and Jason have, being that they did work together, how much will that help that even though each guy is coming to a new team, they're coming here together? No, obviously familiarity is always... Uh, there's always a lot of positives that go with familiarity. And, you know, Jason sat us all down last year, myself, Colombo, Kellen, and talked about, okay, how do we want to construct the offense? How do we want to, you know, systematically install our system of football? And, uh, and so he and Mark, understanding that together, now that Jason, you know, Jason's not going to have to, you know, explain that to the offensive line coach of how we want to systematically put things together, I think that's going to be a huge uh, advantage for them and, uh, and and it's going to help them you know kind of get that message out faster both to staff and players and, you know obviously it's hard right now but you know I know Jason I guarantee he's, he's doing some innovative things on how, how you communicate things virtually you know John I, that, and you took me exactly where I wanted to go and you mentioned this is challenging right now you know Mark Colombo can't get his hands on these offensive linemen. He can't te- physically teach them technique and work on that sort of stuff. Jason Garrett, you know, can't get the quarterbacks on the field making these reads that he wants in his offense live. How do you think those two guys, knowing what you know about them, are adjusting to this virtual environment to kind of get their messages across and, and get the learning done that they need done with a lot of these installations now without the guys on the field? Yeah, it's tough. It's tough on everybody. Certainly tough for new coaches. Um, and so, but I guarantee you, like I said, Jason Garrett is using every tool and thing that he can to, to make things come to life 
for you know for the whole staff and for the players. And you know, Jason Jason is so good at being present and controlling what he can control. And he's not going to spend one minute thinking about the things that he can't do anything about. He's just going to be best he can be at what he what he has available to him. So I know I know that the guys are getting coached up as good as anybody in the league right now. And I think it's going to you know pay off when they get a chance to actually put a, put their hands on the guys and start teaching. I'm curious, John, because you know you've you've had enough of time with Jason over the years, and he knew Joe Judge. I guess the call coming from that that Saban. A coaching tree because uh, Saban had had each of these guys in, in his pre- past, whether it was at Alabama or at the Miami Dolphins. I'm curious as to the camaraderie and that tree that seems to have just spawned so many branches. Have you ever talked to Jason about the evidence of of the influence of guys like Saban and Parcells and how much that influences all of them as they continue to go into their careers? Yeah, you know, we've had those conversations, and it's really a conversation about, okay, why, why, why do those guys tend to get hired and, and, you know, maybe without a lot of knowledge, personal knowledge of them? Because you know that if they come from a Saban, Parcells, Belichick kind of tree, you're getting a person that's super detail-oriented and that's going to see, uh, see things both from a micro level and a macro level and, and uh, see things long, long-term, and then see the thing that's right in front of them and, and have a plan for all of that. So, you know, that's why I say when Jason took over in 2010 and seeing him from day one stand in front of that team and take command of it and command the room, it was a thing of beauty. And, it's, again, I, somebody that I've really tried to model, you know, even at the high school level, try to model my coaching after. And, uh, you know, I couldn't get enough of sitting with him last year and just – you know, picking his brain. How can I, you know, how can I coach this quarterback better? How can I, you know, coach that room better? So, uh, he, again, people know what you're getting when you get those Saban, Belichick, you know, Parcell, three guys. Final question for me, John. Giants picked up two Cowboys players this offseason, Cooper Rush and Cam Fleming. Tell me about them. Cam Fleming, I love the kid. Just, you know, consummate pro. Going to be ready to play. Uh, he just, he, he fits Colombo, which is, man, it may not always look pretty for him, but he's just going to win. And he's going to know both sides. He's never going to complain. And, uh, you know, he's going to be a good, solid player for you. Uh, Cooper Rush. Cooper Rush is going to be the best thing that's ever happened to Daniel Jones. I guarantee that. And uh, he's going he's gonna to be able to help Daniel see things uh, so much better, so much faster because of, I mean, Cooper is probably one of the smarter people I've ever been around. I've been around a lot of smart ones. Um, but not only smart, being able to convey it, and then, you know, I think he, I think he's an arrow up, arrow up physical ability guy. If he has to play in a football game, I guarantee he's going to give the team a chance to win. That's all you ever want for your backup quarterback. John, my final question actually kind of goes back to the beginning of this circle. It goes back to Daniel Jones. You played quarterback in this league for a long time, had a tremendous amount of success, and and also being a coach. So, what do you see in Daniel Jones? as you look at him as the Giants' second-year QB? I had a chance to obviously uh, evaluate him last year uh, going into the draft and watching a bunch of tape on him. And of all those guys coming out last year, this guy was the best one, not even close, from 20 yards and in. I'm going to be dice people up. Uh, he knew exactly where to go with the football. He was accurate as heck uh, from 20 yards and in. And the big question that I had was, you know, the deep ball, 
but those are all correctable things, and I think he's corrected them. Uh, he certainly seems to have a great connection with the young receiver uh, that you guys have, and, and uh, you know, you get your tight end back, and, and uh, you got a couple of those other receivers that are going to be more healthy this year. I mean, he's everything that you're looking for in a quarterback. He's mobile enough, uh, but he's but he's a, a person that's going to play the game from the pocket first. And so you just love that. Um, I just, you know, shoot, sky's the limit for him, honestly. So and that I, is yeah. former NFL quarterback and former Cowboys QB coach John Kitna with John Schmelk and Paul Dettino here on Big Blue Kickoff Live. Had an opportunity to discuss a variety of different entities connected to the Giants offense and how that may translate over from what they ran in Dallas. And I actually, coincidentally, Paul, had an opportunity to speak to John Kitten on my Sirius XM show, and he echoed very similar sentiments when he talked about Garrett as a play caller, his aggressiveness, and the similarities between the Giants and the Cowboys personnel. And we've talked about that on previous programs, you know, when you look at what Jason Garrett is working with here versus what he had in Dallas, is it equivalent, identical? No, but you still have a dynamic running back. You've got a young mobile quarterback, and you've got plenty of weapons in terms of the receiving core as well as the tight end position. Well, I think the one thing that the Giants don't have right now, and yes, they do have Evan Ingram, who is a tall target, but I equate him more to what Witten would be in the Giants' offense in terms of how the Giants would like to use him as a pass-catching tight end. What the Giants don't have right now is that skyscraping wide receiver. They don't have the proven guy who is, you know, 6'3", with a very long wingspan, to be able to just go up and make a play. And Garrett had that earlier in his career when, when he was with the uh, Dallas Cowboys. And, and even last year, you know, look, look at what Amari Cooper did for them. So, you know, I appreciate what, what Sterling Shepard bring to the table. I appreciate Golden Tate. I appreciate Darius Slayton. But these guys are not skyscrapers. Again, Hakeem Nix was a pseudo-skyscraper because he had such great length and he had such large hands. He played like a Plexico Burris skyscraper type would be. That's where the Giants still have to find that missing component, Lance, at least as far as I'm concerned. Well, and if you go back to the Cowboys' track record with Garrett as the play caller, they had Des Bryant, so that Correct. is somebody that worked with Romo as well as Dak Early. And then you mentioned they brought in Amari Cooper. So they had a variety of different wide receivers. I don't get so much caught up in the size. I think what's demonstrated there is the big-time playmaking ability from the both of those guys that we named. Now, with respect to the Giants, you've got some proven commodities in the receiving core. Do you have somebody that in the blink of an eye could put up 100 receiving yards? I think Shepard showed flashes of that. Golden Tate has certainly shown flashes of that. Slayton small sample size. The potential, the upside is there, but I don't disagree with you. I think if you compare it to Dez and Amari Cooper, a little bit different in terms of the resume and the track record. Well, you know why, Lance? And you mentioned the big play capability, and in a way, we're just talking about the same thing in different terms. Guys like Dez Bryant and Amari Cooper have very large catch radiuses, and they win the 50-50 ball more often than not. And it's because of their large catch radiuses. And as you said, that leads to making big plays. Look, again, I like Sterling Shepard a lot. I like Golden Tate a lot. But these guys are not, I'm sorry, but they're not the variety of the guys you just mentioned. 
in terms of catch radius and making those 50-50 balls turn into big plays. They're just not. The Giants haven't had one of those guys since Akeem Nix. Toomer used to do it. Plexico Burris used to do it. They need to make sure that they get one of those guys for this room. And, And I certainly hope, I certainly hope that a guy like Austin Mack can be that guy. Because I, I really like the, the rookie out of Ohio State who comes to the Giants as an undrafted rookie free agent, uh, 6'2", with terrific length and the ability to make those kinds of plays. At least that's what he did with the Buckeyes. Well, the bottom line is the Giants have actually had a number of undrafted players make the roster over the last few seasons. So it's certainly not impossible. You just wonder, is this year a little bit more difficult than previous years for undrafted players given the current layout of the world right now, the country, and the unknown of whether or not they're going to get back for a full training camp. I think that may make it a little bit more challenging this year, Paul, compared to recent history. I think that's a very fair comment. I think the other thing that uh, John Kitna alluded to, which I thought was a little bit more eye-opening than I would have thought going into the conversation, was when he said, hey, Jason Garrett wants to get his running back 25 to 30 touches a game. To this point, Saquon Barkley, through his first two years of the NFL, is only averaging about 21 to 22 touches a game. And if we believe what Kitna says to hold true going forward, then that means he's going to get even more work, whether it's pass catching out of the backfield or taking handoffs. It sounds like that Garrett is going to try to up that number just a bit. Well, this is what I will say. If you look at what the Cowboys have done, at least since Zeke has been drafted, the backup quarterback, the backup running back, excuse me, does not get nearly as many carries or even near a 50-50 split. So that to me is extremely encouraging that Saquon Barkley is going to be a workhorse and then some. Case in point, if you look at just 2019, Zeke had 301 carries. That's not even touches, Paul, that I'm talking about. Whereas Tony Pollard who was the next guy on the depth chart. He had 86 carries. So just think about the disparity there. And then Zeke had 54 receptions on 71 targets. Tony Pollard had 15 receptions on 20 targets. So the reason I'm bringing that up is the stat showcase that Zeke was by far the workhorse. Nobody was even in the vicinity of taking X amount of touches from a big bulk standpoint from Zeke. So I would not sense any difference in terms of how they treat Saquon Barkley this season. I will say this, after Barkley caught 91 passes as an NFL rookie and only 52 last year, and understand he did miss three-plus games because of an injury, I would expect his receiving numbers to go higher. I think that's where it's going to be, but that's a guess. I, I can't tell you what's going on in Jason Garrett's head right now, but but I would assume that the receiving numbers will take a hike. Well, and Zeke's numbers progressively went up during the course of his tenure with Dallas. Once again, just used as a means of comparison. It fluctuated a little because he did have 95 targets in 2018. It went down to 71 in terms of what was brought to the table in 2019. But I still think, I agree with you, I think there's potential for Saquon Barkley to be heavily utilized as not just a rusher, but as a receiver. Because what we've learned that Saquon Barkley can do is, and this is what John Kidna emphasized, when you get the ball into his hands, whether it be as a runner or a receiver, Paul, and you get him out into open space, he's extremely dangerous. And I think Zeke proved that in Dallas. Once again, no reason why Saquon can't do the same thing moving forward. 
Yeah, I would agree with you, Lance. And I think the other thing that we heard from John Kitten that I thought was very interesting is when he talked about Jason Garrett's uh, ability to camouflage offenses. In other words, know that these are the plays you want to run. How are you going to get to those plays? And it's all about the different looks and the different setups. Well, that's exactly what Joe Judge wants out of the other side of the ball in defensive coordinator Patrick Graham. And so it seems to me that he's looking for a similar uh, type of multiple-look philosophy on both offense and on defense. And, and I think that provides a very interesting dynamic. It certainly could be very difficult to learn. It may be a lot harder for those guys to get that stuff down. But I, I think there is some consistency in terms of what judges' goals are. That's what I think adds some intrigue to the New York Giants entering this season because while you feel as if you can make comparisons, you really don't know, especially with a first-time head coach out on his own. So that's going to be something certainly to monitor and watch moving forward. Before we open up the phone lines at 973-667-1960, and a reminder, there's multiple ways that you can interact with us on this program. It's not just through the phone lines. You can tweet at us, hashtag Giants Chat. You can also tweet at us directly, at Lance Meadow, one word, last name, M-E-D-O-W. He's at Giants W-F-A-N, and you could submit questions continue to do that as you did prior to us getting back up and running live each and every weekday at noon eastern at giants.com slash podcast slash bbk questions the governor of new jersey tweeted out earlier today some new developments in terms of a timeline which is connected to the new york giants and let's make this clear number one the nfl rules and regulations are going to dictate when players and coaches paul can return to the facility that's number one but For the sake of geography, Governor Phil Murphy of New Jersey tweeted out the following earlier today, quote, professional sports teams in New Jersey may return to training and even competition if their leagues choose to move in that direction. We have been in constant discussions with teams about necessary protocols to protect the health and safety of players, coaches, and personnel, end quote. And the Giants followed up with a statement of their own saying that they've been in communication with Governor Murphy. They plan to move forward starting next week with slowly opening up the facility. But once again, that would probably only be for essential personnel. The NFL is going to dictate, Paul, when coaches and players can physically return to action. That is very true, Lance. And we've been asked many times, I know you on Twitter as well as myself and John and Jeff, we've all heard from the fans about, well, when are the Giants going to get back to the facility? Everybody anticipating that once that happens, you know you're going to be a mega step closer to starting the season. Well, the bottom line is this. Okay, Governor Murphy has now given his thumbs up, so he's cleared out any blockages that he could have thrown up. But you still have to go through the NFL and Roger Goodell, the commissioner, who was trying to make sure that everybody is on an even playing field competition-wise. Plus, you've also got to understand that as everybody around this country is slowly getting back to opening again, they are still trying to be cautious. We're still trying to take this thing one step at a time. God forbid there should be a setback or a spike or something goes wrong with this reopening of the country and then everything has to go back to zero again. So let's just hope for the best that they're going to go along at a snail's pace, very slowly, very carefully, very calculated in terms of of their approach. And at some point in time, it certainly looks like things are going to turn out well. They're moving forward. 
And that that's about the only thing that I really take out of what happened today is that Governor Murphy made a statement that says we are pointed in the right direction. Yeah, I would agree with you. I think that's the optimistic outlook in terms of a specific timeline or timetable. Way too premature because, once again, goes back to Roger Goodell and the NFL when they sent out that memo a few weeks ago to every team. Competitive balance is the key. And in order to maintain that, they can't allow one team to reopen the facility, allow the coaches and players back in when other teams can't do that. So this is encouraging to your point where it allows facilities to get back up and running because they may have to make changes to the setup of facilities to Mm -hmm. accommodate social distancing protocols. And then when we get to the point where every coach and every player at least can get back in the facility, that's when we could start talking about perhaps training camp and so forth and specific timelines and timetables. But from an optimistic standpoint, there's no doubt about it, encouraging news, at least in the state of New Jersey, in terms of what Governor Phil Murphy released today. Let's open up the phone lines at 973-667-1960. Remember, it's a brand new number, 973-667-1960. And we bring in Joe, who is in Pennsylvania. Joe, welcome to Big Blue Kickoff Live. What do you got for us? Uh, Welcome back, Carter. Uh, Great job by you guys during the draft and free agency. And uh, recently, I I really like the breakdown of the NFC East by you guys. And we, you know what I mean, how far away we were, you know, with there's some questions where we can really catch them, like with our cornerbacks and our linebackers. I think we can make up some more ground there, you know, get some points where, where you know, you gave the edge to the Eagles here and there. Um, what I'm going to say there, now, say we, we I Joe Judge, I guess he, does he sit down with his offensive coordinator and make the game plan? for who who each team he plays each week. And the same with the defense. Does he sit down with his defensive coordinator and decide what kind of game plan they're going to put in? Or does he just basically put it in and give it to the, to the coordinator? Well, Joe, I, I'll take this one, Lance. I'm, I'm very hesitant to give an answer until I see Joe Judge actually go through the operation a couple of times. Because okay. at this point, you know, he's still a new head coach. We may have some thoughts about what we think he might do, but it would be premature to give you an honest answer because until we see him actually run his operation the way he wants to run it, it's all a guess. Yeah, I guess Paul Wright and – I guess you got to see uh, uh, your your people performing too. You'd like to see them, and you know what you think of them and their chances against the player they're up against. So, you know, I I can I can understand that. That was one of my 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 questions there, and like going, how often do you think we'll go like uh, like uh, too tight end? You're talking about the receivers that much. What percentage of the time do you think we'd go too tight end? You know, I, you know me. I love the double tight end formation, and I hope that we see more of it. We do know that the Cowboys under Jason Garrett did employ it much more frequently than the Giants have in the last decade. So I would like to believe we're going to see a lot more of that. And I do think that right now, if Evan Ingram is healthy, and Lance, I'm sure you would agree with me, the Giants all of a sudden have some, some healthy depth at the tight end position. They have multiple options, and appreciate the phone call, Joe. Thanks so much for weighing in. Caden Smith's emergence, I think, makes it very promising for them to put two tight ends on the field at the same time, especially with Caden Smith's ability to block. 
Uh, Levine Toilolo is another big option, an additional offensive lineman, essentially. And he has filled in at right tackle previously when he was with the Atlanta Falcons. So, you know, they have options to easily put one guy out there, serve as the blocker, let Evan Ingram run routes, or vice versa. Have Caden Smith also serve as another threat in the receiving game. That gives them some versatility. And if you go back to when Jason Winnen was on the team the first time around, Blake Jarwin was a young tight end, but they found ways to utilize multiple tight ends. So I don't think it's crazy at all to think that Jason Garrett's going to find ways to put two tight ends on the field simultaneously. How often? That remains to be seen. As far as the question with respect to, Paul, you know, what Joe Judge's philosophy is going to be, we're going to have to wait and see, as you mentioned. I will say this. I find it hard to believe that whether you're a first-time head coach or you're a seasoned head coach, that you're not having some type of an influence on multiple facets of the team. How Mm -hmm. much of an influence, that remains to be seen. But once again, coaches who are at the top, they watch film and they study every facet of the opposition. So he's going to have takeaways with respect to what the opponents are going to do against the Giants from a defensive and an offensive perspective. And there's going to be a back and forth. How much leeway he gives his coordinators, once again, you know that will determine be based on what happens from a week-to-week basis and what we see over the first few weeks of the season. But, you know, Judge is going to have an influence in every facet of this team. It's not as if he's the head coach and he's just going to allow every coordinator to do what they want. I find it hard to believe that he's not going to have a back and forth with his coordinators each and every week. Well, maybe the only hint that we have along those lines, Lance, is when he talked about how he wanted his staff to be teachers. And I will never forget when he said this at his first press conference about how I'm going to ask my coaches, not about what my guys can't do, my players in particular. I want to know what they can do. And I think that sells me, and I could be reading it wrong, but I think that tells me he's going to give a little more freedom to the coordinators because the coordinators are going to be the guys who are going to figure out what those guys can do, and it's their job to be as creative as possible to maximize whatever it is that they believe those guys are going to be able to put forth on the field. At least that's the the inference that I'm making, and it may be incorrect, so, again, I put an asterisk there that this is totally a guess. But when you, when you make a statement of that nature, it, it says to me he's going to put a lot of onus on his coordinators. As well as his positional coaches, as you mentioned, because sure. they're the ones teaching and working with the players on the roster on a daily basis. Uh, I don't disagree with you there, but I also think that he's going to oversee a lot of the work that the players are doing on a daily basis. He's going to have his own take on that. And remember, just from the logistics standpoint, Paul, and this is a fair generic statement for every team, there's coaches meetings that go on every single day, staff meetings. So judges constantly getting feedback from his entire staff. He's constantly getting feedback from his coordinators. And within those meetings, they usually have an opportunity to weigh in on various topics. So during those meetings, there's some back and forth. It may not be an exact meeting between he and the offensive coordinator, but it could be a meeting with the larger group, the overall Mm -hmm. staff, in which there is ideas being exchanged. So, you know, you see that in training camp, but that also happens quite often during the course of the regular season as well. Yeah, look, there's a lot of stuff that we still don't know about and that we want to see because we are all so very curious. We have such a favorable first impression of what Joe Judge and his staff bring to the table. But until we actually see them get there and start chowing down, we really don't know what they have.
Absolutely. That's what, once again, I think adds a little bit of excitement and intrigue connected to the Giants because when you have a new staff and you have guys that have worked together for quite some time, it adds the element of the unknown, which is not necessarily a bad thing, at least for the sake of the Giants when going up against the opposition. Let's head back to the phone lines. We check in with Mark, who is in Chicago, joining us here on Big Blue Kickoff Live. What's happening, Mark? Hey, guys. Great to talk to you again. Um, I just sort of want to echo some of the things that some people have said about thanking you guys for all the work that you've done to put on a show for the last couple months and the challenges that that had. Um, you know, sometimes you guys, you don't really realize it, that some people have, you know, issues in their lives, whether it be with their family or their work or whatever, and just getting it, or this COVID thing, and just for an hour a day, being able to just get away from it all and and you know, just think about something that you really enjoy. You don't know how what the impact that that has on people sometimes. So I just want to say thank you. You're very well, we kind. appreciate you tuning in. Thanks so much. Okay. Um, guys, I wanted to talk to you uh, about two of the proposed changes to the rules this week that the uh, owners are going to vote on. Uh, one is the onside kick and one is the sky judge. Um, I'll give you my personal opinions and then, you know, I'll listen to you off the air. Um, in terms of the onside kick, I am so against the change in this rule, and I sort of wish, you know, no offense, that Jeff was on to get his opinion on this. You know, I'm not really quite sure if it's because of injury they want to make the change. You know, I don't really recall anybody really being severely injured on an onside kick. It really isn't that much more than a regular play. Um, I don't like the placement of the ball. I think it's disadvantageous. You know, limiting it to two times. I mean, look at the, you know, Super Bowl 44 and how that was such a momentum changer because of the surprise that it had in the game. I, I'm just so totally against it because I think it's, you know, artificially injecting something into the game that doesn't belong there. Well, so, with respect to the rule, number one, they're not eliminating the onside kick. They're just giving teams another option, specifically late in the game if you're down, as a way to come back by having a 4th and 15 from your own 25. And if you convert that, you retain possession, and then who knows what happens after that. Maybe you get a touchdown, a field goal. That's in the eye of the beholder in terms of what they're going to run on offense. I agree with you, Mark. I'm not a fan of it, whether it can be used twice or whether it can be used three times, mainly because I think if a team digs itself in an early hole, we should not be looking to give gifts to them to try to get back in the game. I don't think it has anything to do with safety because the whole point of them changing the onside kick rule was for safety concerns. What I would like to see them do is, right now the rule is the ball's got to travel 10 yards before you can attempt to recover it. If they maybe made it, the ball could travel 7 yards before you can recover. I think that may increase the opportunities for recovery. Because right now, if you look at the NFL, it's about a 10% rate of recovery. So what they're arguing is it's virtually impossible to recover an onside kick. This is their way of saying we're going to give a team another opportunity to get back in the game since it's impossible to recover an onside kick. And this is their way of thinking creatively. This, to me, has nothing to do with safety, as you alluded to. This is all about how do we increase the chances of teams getting back in games. And my argument is you should do a better job earlier in the game remaining competitive. If you don't, it's not the job of the NFL to give you a handout. See, and you have to understand, too, I think they're trying to rebalance the scale, if you will, because when they determined, because of safety reasons, that you have to have an equal amount of players on each side of the kicker on a kickoff, that prohibited you now from loading up one side of the field. 
And that's what you always did when you had an onside kick. You remember, there would barely be anybody on the other side because they'd all flood over to the right or to the left, and now you'd have mega roller derby-type collisions as the team tried to recover the kick. And they said, well, wait a minute, that's not a safe way to go, so let's make sure that we split the guys on each side of the field. Well, now that they did that, they're saying, well, but now it's going to be pretty hard to recover the onside kick, so we have to figure out something else. They keep tinkering with things, and remember, part of the problem is every time that you change a rule, you potentially cause another mosquito bite on another part of the rule book. Well, I I understand that. I, I don't understand why they're moving it back to the 20 from the 35. I think that that's something. But anyway, do you think this thing will pass? I it's hard no to idea. say because I think a lot of it depends on what type of a quarterback you have. For example, Andy Reid came out this week. Yeah, they probably have an advantage because Patrick Mahomes, because of his trickery, picking up 15 yards is not that difficult. Or the Ravens with Lamar Jackson or the Packers with Aaron Rodgers. If you don't have a quarterback where you think you have a high rate to pick up 15 yards, maybe you're going to be against it. So I think it's going to be awfully close. I don't think it's necessarily going to be an overwhelming lock. And just to keep in mind, you need 75%. So you need 24 owners to approve a rule change. 24 of the 32, that would be 75%. Let me clarify, too. Lance, you said something a second ago, and I want to make sure I got this right because I wasn't sure that it was made clear to me. Are they talking about giving teams an option of trying an onsides kick or the 4th and 15? Or are they saying, no, it's now going to be an automatic 4th and 15 if you want to in lieu of an onsides kick? No, the option is there to go for a 4th and 15 twice a game. So but you can use an onside kick. 100%. You're not going to outlaw it. You could still oh, go to okay. the kick if you want to. 100%. I wasn't sure I understood that. Okay. Yeah, okay. and Mark, appreciate the phone call. Thanks so much for uh, chiming in. Good to hear from you. Yeah, it's an option. I-, I think the way it's being spun, and it's a fair question that you pose, Paul, that the onside kick is being completely removed from the NFL. No, because if the NFL was removing the onside kick, then they would basically tell every team, you can go for a fourth and 15 on every single possession, but they're limiting it to two opportunities. So if you are down by 25 points, hypothetically, Paul, in the third quarter, and on back-to-back possessions, you go for a fourth and 15 from your own 25, that's it. Once you do it twice... You can't do it again. So once the fourth quarter rolls around, your only option is an onside kick or to kick off regularly. So this is just another way to allow teams to get back into games in a creative form. Now, also keep in mind, Paul, they implemented this in the Pro Bowl. Yes. And if you remember, they used the Pro Bowl previously to experiment with extra points Mm -hmm. and all of that type of stuff. So now what they're saying is, okay, we toyed with it in the Pro Bowl. We got some decent results. Now let's try to put it into a vote for the regular season. And like anything else, they would probably, if it, assuming it gets passed, they would use it as a one-year experiment, and then they would have to reapprove it after this season to make it full go moving forward. Similar to the pass interference. Pass interference now was wiped out. They worked through it for this past season. They did not like the results. Okay, it's no longer on the table. So I would think a similar thing would occur where they would experiment for a year and then they would have to vote all over again to determine whether or not they want it to be permanent. You know what takes me off, and I think the NFL did not like the perception and this is why they did not move to do this, but the XFL's kickoff rule was by far, and I mean by far, 
the best rule that Vince McMahon and his league had implemented earlier this year. I absolutely loved that kickoff rule, and that was not one of the proposals that the NFL discussed last week. That bothered me immensely because I thought it was the best new rule that anyone could have come up with. And I also love the official uh, strictly uh, being assigned to handling the football. Did, did you, you're, are you familiar with this one, Lance? Yes, that one I am familiar I with. I loved it. 25-second play clock, which I was heavily in favor of, and then to make sure that you could operate that efficiently, there would be a separate official behind the offense who just handled the football so that he could be the official ball spotter. And so they would have fewer mistakes in terms of spotting the ball and making sure that it was done quickly so that teams could get up to the line of scrimmage and get their play call or get their spike off if they wanted to. These were two great rules by the XFL, and neither of them came up in the NFL meetings, and that did disturb me. Well, the second one you just mentioned, I can understand the NFL implementing because that's more of a technical part of the game, and it's to move the efficiency of the game forward. The reason why I'm not too fond of this option for a 4th and 15 is That creativity should be welcomed in the XFL because the XFL is not the premier football league in this country. So the XFL is also looking for ways to bring in new viewers, bring in new casual fans. I get it. They want to separate themselves from the NFL. They want to be different in certain areas. That's great. The NFL, though, does not have to look for those ways to separate themselves from the rest of the pack because the NFL is already the number one seat holder. So if the NFL wants to look for ways to tweak, to me it's more of what you talked about, having the official handle the football, making it efficient, time on the play clock. Those are the types of things I could see the NFL wanting to go more well, into. Well, the kickoff the rule was meant for safety purposes. The XFL kickoff rule was a really good rule because, A, it kept the kickoff in the game. You could still get the big play. And at the same time, you had less impact on the collisions. I mean, that's a win-win. I, I don't understand why there would be any resistance to that one. And then the, the, the one that I did see discussed last week, which I liked a lot, was the Sky Judge. And you and I have been talking about this with the CFL now for a few years. That's a good rule. Yeah, I remember I actually had a conversation with the former head of the officiating department for the CFL, and he explained how they implemented it and how it sort of took the pressure off of the officials on the field. That's something that I certainly think the NFL could toy with. It is one of the ones that they're going to have to vote on, so we'll see whether or not the entire league is on the same page. It seems as if most owners and most executives had been pushing for that, and that's why it finally got on the ballot. So I would say of all of them that I would think would be implemented for at least a year trial, it would probably be the Sky Judge, just to have an extra set of eyes and another form of communication between somebody physically at the game as well as somebody physically on the field. I think that makes a lot of sense. I'm with you. Let's go to some questions on Twitter. And as we mentioned, you can continue to submit them to hashtag Giants chat, us individually, as well as Giants.com slash podcast slash BBK questions. And this Twitter question has to do with free agency. And it comes from YJ. Why do you think the Giants are jumping, aren't, excuse me, jumping on Everson Griffin right now, considering how weak they are at the pass rush position? And Everson Griffin formerly of the Minnesota Vikings. He right now is on the market. Certainly an elite pass rusher, a consistent pass rusher. I don't think it's necessarily the Giants in general. I think if you saw over across the last few weeks, Paul, 
free agency has slowed down immensely. And I mm-hmm. think a lot of it has to do with, I don't think teams are in a rush to bring in a veteran to their team until maybe they get some type of a timeline of when they're going to get back on the field because I just don't know if there's that much of an advantage right now bringing a polished veteran who has been able to be in the league for many years, has worked under different schemes of having them in for a Zoom meeting here or there. No, I agree with you, Lance. And then the other thing you have to figure out if you're the Giants Do you want to go with your pass rush by committee, which is what they appear to have set up to this point? Or do you think that Everson Griffin can come in and be a Batman, if you will? I'm not sure right now at this stage of his career if he is a Batman. It's a fair question. I think that he, of all the options currently on the Giants roster, I would label him as Batman. If you were to ask me in comparison to the Giants roster. Now, is there some questions about durability? Yes. Is there some questions about whether or not he would be a fit? Yes. All of those things you have to examine, too. I think, remember, the other thing that we didn't bring up is the money. You know, Everson Griffin is a top pass rusher when you look at the landscape overall. Now, what does he want from a financial standpoint? What are the Giants willing to meet if, of course, they are interested in him. You know, it's not so simple. And this is my response to any time a caller or somebody on Twitter brings up a name and they're like, oh, that name is appealing. Why don't the Giants go after him? Well, it takes two to tango. Does the player meet what the Giants are looking for? Does the player want to join the team? We don't know that. We're operating without that intel. So unless you know all that information, it's hard to say. I think the other thing is, and we've brought this up multiple times, similar to the secondary, Paul, the Giants have a lot of young linebackers, young pass rushers. You bring in a new coach, you bring in a new coordinator, part of building continuity in today's NFL is working with that youth and not bringing in necessarily a veteran that's going to take reps away from those young guys. I think that may be a big part of the philosophy too. Hey, let's Mm -hmm. work with what we have in-house. Let's see what we have in-house, and if it doesn't work out, then maybe we can explore an option down the road in terms of a veteran free agent. That's a very fair uh, way to phrase it because you know that the Giants absolutely positively are in the business of trying to develop the young guys that they have now. Even Leonard Williams is a young guy, a young veteran, so to speak, and they still think the best is yet to come from him. Look, here's the bottom line. For me, when I talk about a Batman, I'm talking about a guy who's going to have at least a dozen sacks, probably more, and, and at least two dozen quarterback hits. Well, in his last two years, uh, Griffin, eight sacks last year in 15 games, 24 hits. Uh, you know, he's kind of fringing there. And the year before, 11, 11 games, five and a half quarterback sacks and only 13 hits. Really, you'd have to go back to 2017 when he had 13 sacks and 25 quarterback hits where he truly was a Batman. I'm not so sure in the last two years that he hasn't taken a step back from that level. And that's why I said those are things you need to take into consideration. But I will say this, from a resume standpoint, he'd be by far the most decorated pass rusher on the Giants roster. Without a doubt. Without a doubt. But it's not about is he Batman compared to what you have. It's about is he a Batman on an NFL league-wide level. When I talk about these guys, when I say Batman and Robin, I'm not talking about what are they in your locker room. I'm talking about are they league-wide considered to be a Batman or a Robin. And I'm not sure he's a Batman on the NFL level today. Let's head back to the phone lines. Charlie is in Portland, Maine. Charlie, what is happening today? Hey, Lance. Hey, Paul. Hey, Lance. I just hey guys. I just want to correct you on your percentage of onside kicks. 
with a new rule onside kick, it's only 3% recovered. So that's a big difference between 10 and 3. That's why they're talking about going to like a try a fourth down and 15 because it's well, probably Charlie, more that's like... because they evened out the number of players on both sides of the kicker, like I said. Yeah, exactly. That was a safety exactly. issue. <clears throat> yeah, exactly. That's why they're talking about doing a fourth and 15 or a third and 15 actually is a better percentage of making it than an onside kick. The way well, that's what we uh, talked about, but we had mentioned right that earlier. Now. That's exactly what we said. Yeah, I know. Yeah, but you said 10%. Well, because I, according difference. to my research, <laughs> I have 10%. So I don't know where well, you check, got your 3% figure. I, I just read it. When well, I was you, about okay, well, great. There. You read it. Where'd you read it? I mean, did you read it in the clouds? Did you read it in, you <laughs> no, know, I read it from your fair, neighbor? I to mean, be come fair, on. Lance, I think you said it was over the last decade, right? Was That that was the average over the last Correct, 10 years? Correct, that, that the numbers have progressively so does, gone right, down. Right, yeah. so Charlie, uh, the, you know, right. he, okay. he did quantify I, I his, his statement. All right, you did. Okay, well, I, I just want to give you the updated figure on what's going on. And with what, you have yet to name a source of the updated figure. It's the NFL source. That's who it is. Look up, go to the NFL.com. They'll talk about the what's going on with the new proposals going into, uh, possibly going into the league this year. So anyway, uh, besides that, <laughs> uh, you, you were talking about, Paul, you were talking about getting that wide receiver that has, you know, the height and has the dimensions and the reach and and I think we got a couple of guys that, if we use them properly, I think Ryson John, who is six seven, mm-hmm. and he's a, he was a wide receiver. He was not a tight end. Even, well, even yeah, but remember division. something. Hold on, Charlie, please. I I, I don't <laughs> like to interrupt, but I have to sometimes to make please sure do. we got the facts right. <laughs> is that Ryson John? When he worked out uh, up in Canada for pro scouts, they were working him out as a tight end. So even though he was a receiver at Simon Frazier, pro scouts were working him out as a tight end. So you have to keep that in mind uh, when you talk about where he is going to be looked at with the Giants. We won't know until they put him on the practice field. But it would not surprise me if they decided that they wanted to look at him as a tight end. But I, the thing, what I'm saying is, is potential there with him. I know he's from a Division two school, but he uh, he has uh, incredible length. He's he's got talent. And then the other guy that we have is Victor from uh, Ohio State too. Mm-hmm. Isn't he the taller guy? Isn't he like six? Benjamin four or Victor. Yeah, yeah. And there, there's, so there's no a... question about his length. Have you ever looked at his waistline? <laughs> no, What's Charlie. I'm not being funny. He, he, he is as skinny as a number two pencil. I, I'm I'm well, seriously concerned about uh, Benjamin Victor's ability to hold up to hits in the National Football League. I, I think he's got talent. He certainly has length and radius. He played for a big-time program. I get all of that. But they used a rotation system at Ohio State, which means the number of snaps he saw were limited the number of opportunities he got were limited, the number of hits he sustained were limited. I watched this guy on tape, and I like him. In fact, um, oh, what was it? It was in the East-West Shrine game, uh, I believe, that mm-hmm. I saw him uh, catch a 50-50 ball from midfield. It was a bomb, and I think there were two or three defenders around him, and he just reached up and plucked it for a touchdown. And I'm like, oh, that's, that's what I want to see. My question is, though, when you look at him, his frame, he's as wiry and as spindly as Stephen Baker, the touchdown maker, was. 
All right, Charlie. concerned about his ability to, to hold up on hits. Right. And, Charlie, listen, we'll get more into the height and waistline of all the players on the roster because <laughs> we know you're dying to know more about that moving forward. We appreciate the phone call. Leave it to Charlie to want to examine the dimensions of uh, every person on the roster. And those are options in the receiving core. But once again, until these guys get on the field, it's very hard to speculate as to where they may fit in and their chances of making the oh, impact. Give, give on him the a team. chance. Give him a look. Let Absolutely. him try. And if he can hold up, then it's great to have have him so that is going to wrap up tuesday's edition of big blue kickoff live certainly appreciate all the phone calls as well as the tweets and a reminder you continue to submit your questions at giants.com slash podcast slash bbk questions hashtag giants chat on twitter and you can continue to ring us up at 973-667-1960 as we are back up and running each and every weekday at noon eastern paul always a blast going back and forth look forward to doing it again later this week another terrific show lance thank you And once again, thanks to John Kittner for joining us earlier in the program. The archive will be up on Giants.com later today. For Paul DeTino, I'm Lance Meadow. Enjoy the rest of your Tuesday. We'll speak to you tomorrow. Have a good one.